Hello, and welcome to Shape the System, where we find and tell the stories that help people to rethink the way the world works. We interview people from all over the world who are helping to change our systems for the better. Shape the System is an independent podcast with support from KPMG High Growth Ventures, who help ambitious founders and their teams scale up for success. More about KPMG High Growth Ventures after the interview. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone. I'm Vincent. I'm your host uh, here at Shape the System. Uh, today, joined by Jessica Kung Dreyfus. I think I've got the Kung bit right. Uh, welcome to the show, Jessica. Thank you so much. Delighted to participate. Yeah, like, um, and there's a huge amount that we're going to talk about today, and we've, we've, we haven't got maybe even enough time to do it justice. But what I wanted to first sort of dive into was this idea of ornamentation and design. Now, I'm going to be pretty green in this, so I'm going to need you to sort of step us through it. But let, let, let's dive straight into this topic that you're really focused on right now. Yeah, sure. I guess I would love to start with just when you hear the word ornament, what comes to mind? Ah, uh, there's probably two things for me because I've, I was actually been thinking about this in, in sort of prep for it. Uh, one being like a an object in my home, you know, like maybe an object in my mother's home, maybe more than my home. <laughs> uh, so something that has some age and some kind of permanence to it. Uh, and then I think of uh, the like the kind of flourishes you might see. I think I remember when I went to Gaudi uh, to the Sagrada de Familia in Barcelona, and that place, you know, felt like there was. A lot of ornaments there, I guess, is probably those are the first two things. I love it. I love it that you came up with Gaudi because I feel like he's probably like the apotheosis of ornament. That's that's recent enough that it's still within the contemporary consciousness. Okay. And with the Sagrada Familia still being built, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I think that's that's a really good, um, great. And oh, good. so, yeah. And so there's many different types of ornament. When you think right. of Gaudi, you're, you're thinking about architectural ornament, right? So sure. specifically ornament that is in a interdependent relationship with the built structure. And so right. you can, if you look at the Sagrada Familia, you really can't take the ornament away from the building. It's like, right. which, where does the ornament start and the, and the church begin? It's, it's interwoven into the experience of the magic of the place. Sure, sure. And so when you say object at home, do you mean like a specific like Christmas tree ornament or like a beautiful statue? Like what comes to mind when you, when what picture do you, do you have? There, yeah, there's, there's, there's a bunch of, there's a room in my parents' house, the house that I grew up in effectively. And this room is kind of the sitting room, I would guess you would call it. It's kind of a relatively large room. It used to have a grand piano in it, not ours, but someone had left it at our house because we had a big enough room for a grand piano. And then there's just a lot of stuff in there, in that room. Not, not Actually, not even that much, just uh, things. Like my father, my mother's father was a um, pharmacist. And in you know his lifetime, which would have been in kind of the 40s, they had a bunch of of the glass bottles that you have where the the lids have been actually kind of you know sanded down to fit the particular bottle that they're going into they're kind of a stopper type thing and they've got this kind of flourished kind of you know labels that are on them that have whatever sub you know substance was in them at the time there's these kinds of things and there's things that you know my my mother's mother had you know like a little red cup that she always had her cup of tea out of and it and it has all these flourishes all over it and all this kind of stuff so it, it's a room that's filled with those kinds of objects um that sort of for me says ornaments that's perfect i, I think i'm i'm impressed by um 
by those two types of, you can say, archetypes that arose in your mind. And right. the key word that I'm getting from you is flourishes. Right. And that's definitely one of the hallmarks of ornament is that it follows the, you can say, biological systems through which things go from seed to flower. And right. so the systems, Fibonacci sequence, other sequences that mm -hmm. define growth, whether it be how crystals are formed or how trees grow, right. are the biological systems that inform ornament design. So right. it's, it's a beautiful thing that you see those flourishes throughout your home. And Gaudi's church is certainly flourishing. Right. <laughs> and another key idea about ornament is that it's what's so unique about it is that it's not self-standing. And so in today's day and age, where it's really about the genius architect or the genius artist who comes up with their own sort of freestanding sculpture or iconic right. sculpture like that makes them famous, ornament is really not about um, personal expression. It's not that it's the suppression of it, rather mm -hmm. it's it needs to be held. So right. ornament needs a holder. And so when you describe the cup, the cup is the holder for the flourish that you right. that you love that reminds you of your mother, right? And mm -hmm. and Gaudi's church holds the ornament, the the flourishes that become, you know, the incredible ceiling and other things. Interesting. And just actually focusing on um on that Gaudi example, like like I remember being in it and they the explanation that um, the the way that the trusses—I don't know if that's the right word from an architecture perspective—but the, the 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 base, these roots that effectively go up to the ceiling, and then they sort of branch out into the ceiling, and they they're effectively like an upside down tree holding the ceiling up. Um, and as I understand it, they're derived from nature. There's actually an organic form to these. Is that is that like the kind of expression of ornament in, in this context? Yes. And so that the, the famous picture of the nave of the church where you see like these incredible trees mm -hmm. um, growing up into the, the flourishes, uh, that's a perfect example of, you could say, going from seed to trunk to branches to leaves right. and the process right. of foliation and, and ornament. So it's rather than, let's say, a contemporary solution might be a green wall in a church, right? right? But what's so powerful about ornament is it's not the it's not putting nature in a building, it's the sublimation of nature. Right. It's the interpretation of natural systems integrated, inseparable from the built form, the right. human creation. And so we, we're using examples in architecture at the moment. I, that, that's a big part of your background, and we're going to get to that a, a little bit later on, but um, take us outside of architecture where, where, where else, you know, I gave an example of a cup, but where else are kind of the hallmarks of where we typically experience, um, you know, ornamentation, or, am I saying that right? Ornamentation? Or, ornament. <laughs> ornament. Ornament and ornamentation would be, I guess, the act of ornamenting act of, something. Yeah. yeah. Where else are we seeing this? I mean, I think the most common would be tattoos. Right. And so when I, when I look up the hashtag ornament in my Instagram, it's almost all tattoos. Really? <laughs> yeah. It's just <laughs> well, fascinating. And yeah. so it's not architectural ornament, it's tattoos. And it's actually yeah. quite profound that it's tattoos because for two reasons. One is the Chinese word for ornament mm -hmm. uh, is wen shi. Uh, yeah. And the wen is ornament. Shi mm -hmm. would be like, you know, the thing that holds it. And wen shen, shen is body. So right. wenshen is ornament for your body. It's the same word. 
um, in Chinese. And wow. another reason why it's very interesting that tattoos would fall under ornament of the body um, is that it is ornament lives at the edge, right? So mm-hmm. it, it, said it's, it's, you said it's sublimed into the thing that it's a part of or a vessel too, but it actually is on top of that and like how, how much it's an edge it's an edge dweller and so it when it looks when it appears in buildings it appears on the edges of things so it helps Mm -hmm. to navigate the transitional spaces between roof and sky so you often see ornament you know on the roofs or you often see ornament uh on the frame of a door or on a mantelpiece because that's it lives on the edge and so tattoos live on the edge of our bodies right the skin Right. And and so in some way it helps many people navigate their edge. It helps them. It, people put tattoos on because it. The the thing that makes people want to get a tattoo is similar to the this deep need that we have to ornament buildings, right? Which right. is that we want to say this is something special. This something really powerful happened. You know, I want to tattoo mm-hmm. it on my body. You know, right. or uh, this is this is my this is what symbolizes who I am, and so you put that on your body and Got so it. that uh, that need is very similar right yeah yeah absolutely and like the other one that sort of comes to mind is uh like i've done a limited amount of classical music study and they always described baroque which is one of the kind of three main eras of music as being heavily ornamented music there's all these flourishes and you know that happens at the end of the music i guess this it was an entire music form that was you know its largest form of expression was this flourish and automation that happened as part of music, like you're thinking um, Bach and these types of composers. Um, so it's even in that form. Yeah, that's a brilliant, you're, you're, you're making brilliant connections. So uh, I just was in conversation with my old, old mentor of mine, Kent Bloomer, who's been teaching right. ornament at Yale for many years. And in the conversation, he specifically used the example you just said, Great. <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is in Baroque music. Uh, yeah. That's an example of ornament in music, exactly what you said. And that rhythm doesn't ornament the music per se. What it does is it ornaments structures within the music. Right. So it ornaments right. rhythm, right? So you can have a right. basic rhythm and the ry- rhythm gets ornamented. Yeah, absolutely. And like the st- structure of the song itself isn't fundamentally changed, but you know, you know, Johan decided needed to go on the end of the note that otherwise would have just been dirt. Um, so just coming back on this, I, like, like, because there's a few you know expressions of this form of ornamentation. Most of the examples we've just talked through are hundreds of years old. What's happening then that's not happening now? Oh, so um, there's a big giant thing that happened called modernism. Right. <laughs> and so, and we're it was be here a while. <laughs> yeah, we're going to, no, it won't be. It's not, it's very short, right? So, okay. cool. you could say that industrialization brought a lot about efficiency and mm-hmm. excess, right? And so, right. ornament got lumped into that unfortunate bucket of excess, right? Uh, extra material, extra labor, extra cost. And so, the economy of scale, the economy of, you can say, how to become more efficient in the construction right. of, of buildings, right? And so that's one very powerful argument that was used by Adolf Luce and other theorists to mm-hmm. call for the annihilation of ornament from modern structures, right? So right. In, the, in the definition of modern, part of that definition was eliminating ornament for all the reasons that 
It also was this old language and moving towards a new architecture was this mm. sort of revolution in aesthetics and, and consciousness of the time. And so mm. to create that break um, was is part of the defining um, gesture of modernism is right. the elimination of ornament. So interesting. We're living in the um, legacy of modernism and the white and box. Right. And this was like, when, when, when was this? When did this sort of movement start that led us to where we are now? Adolf Luce, his, his, his lecture was in the 1920s. And so okay. it was right around the development of the Bauhaus in Germany. Okay. Yeah. Um, fascinating. And look, and do, do you think, I, or not do you think, what, I'm assuming then it sounds like the movement of modernism around architecture sort of pulled other things along with it in terms of the way we approach structured and design and even creative expression. Is that, was architecture leading this or was it something that led architecture there? Oh, well, that's, I'd say, I would, I would, I would say it's World War One. Right. <laughs> there, there is, um, ornament is part of the human spirit. And um, I think it's very hard for us to understand when I was studying sort of art and architecture history, it's hard for us to understand the effect of the trauma of those world wars on the human psyche. Right. And so something about what havoc that wrecked on um, not being able to, to cope in some way, it's like, well, we need to, we need to really reflect on what makes us human and, perhaps we can't look at it and we have to reassess the human condition. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's been, I think the world wars were a huge break, um, psychic break in, in human history that led to modernism. Um, and, and no, I don't think the, the movements in architecture led that. I actually think I, I can't get beyond James Joyce maybe literature, it's hard to point to a specific moment. Um, right, right. That's the thing yeah. about movements. They they move through. <laughs> <laughs> but Ulysses is like one of the first quote-unquote modernist novels as right. a real aberration from traditional narrative structures. Right. So there was there was a con- connective tissue between architecture, music, um, you know, the art of the time, and, uh, you know, a, and I think it was, all, I mean, I'm not schooled enough in art to, to understand this fully, but it, it all sort of emerged... Um, that this kind of shift away from from you know ornamentation and ornament and flourish and everything that comes with that, uh, and then that sort of brings us to and we're still in this now. We're still in a in a period you know largely shaped by a desire to be as scaled and as efficient as possible in the delivery of in of a lot of forms. Architecture as being one of those, but you know our everyday experiences typically are in the, the built world, but even in the digital world. So that that you know modernist kind of thinking and approach is still influential in all of that. Is that that correct? I think it's more than correct. I think it's totally accurate. Right. <laughs> I, I, think, um, I think that modernism has become modern and, and its baseline is what we have now. And what um, the result is most people don't know what ornament is. Like the, right. anni- the annihilation is so total that, right. that we live in a world post-ornament, which I find very ironic because... Adolf Luce, who actually, um, you know, described, wrote an essay called Ornament as Crime. His architecture actually still had ornament. Like he didn't Mm. actually take his advice himself, like literally. Like I don't think they could actually imagine what the glorious white walled 
future was. I mean, they, right. they, they romanticized it, but what its actual implications were, how could they know, right? Right. But right. the fact that we took it to the extreme to a point that he probably could not have even imagined or might have disagreed with actually sure. in practice right. is is the legacy of 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 the the world wars and the 1920s yeah. and 30s that is i think a huge part of why we live in these placeless places mm. yeah and, and so gosh, I'm good. no that's all yeah i was just gonna so uh, what i like this setup's wonderful because what i'm what i'm would really love to understand now because at the core of what you're doing and teaching, um, the consulting that you do and the the processes that you take people on, I'm, I'm not sure the best way to describe it, is about trying to get people back to this mode of thinking or to use this thinking in, in how they think about designing solutions or designing anything. Um, can we can we segue into that? I want to I want to understand how you're now engaging people to to rethink this kind of white wall as you just called it. That's, that was brilliantly put. And so what we're left with in this post-ornament world is no way to navigate the edges. Right. right. And so ornament functioned as a way to guide us through positions of transition and transformation, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so there are these pre-existing, you can say, forms, geometries. Right. Sacred geometries. These are sacred yeah, geometries. They're, they're sacred they're sacred geometries, they're, they're sequences, they're visual languages that, and that are code basically for how you navigate edge conditions. And so wow. whether you're prototyping a new invention or coming up with a new school or anything that is, that is being birthed, mm-hmm. you're constantly navigating an edge condition. That's wow. just part of the creative process. And so cool. ornament... You can say if you look at history, it's like 90% of what we look at has ornament on it. And so the fact that this knowledge was lost leads us, and the consciousness of it has been lost, you can say has led to many, many places of disconnect that are apparent in our culture today. Right. And does this this essentially mean that when people are going through a design process, uh, and you know, I think the, the kind of the baseline for that now is kind of this design-led thinking, and we talked about this prior to, to the interview, uh, that there's something that's missing in the way that they're approaching that design and the way of thinking about something, or that when they come up with a solution, it it still feels sort of empty and and kind of you know placeless to to use the word you used earlier, um, and such as such we're not humans aren't connecting with the resulting solutions as well because it just doesn't feel as natural to us. Is that the disconnect here? So you can trace this disconnect. Um, it's farther back than 1920s. You can say right. it, you can really trace it back to Descartes um, and, and the Enlightenment. Right. Where uh, the elevation of the empirical and the rational, um, Descartes in you know the 1600s, Coin cogito ergo sum, like I think, therefore I am, yep. which has really become the foundation of of modern thought, and mm-hmm. um, I would call it conceptual design processes. Mm-hmm. So this idea that the baseline for any design, if really is, I think of the AutoCAD page, like it's right. it's a hash, which is a Cartesian plane, yep. and it's an it's an abstract space, mm-hmm. and so this idea that um, you are the sole creator. Inter-independent, independent genius manifester that just evolves this idea is is not, and this idea of this obsession with new ideas and newness is 
antithetical to the consciousness of ornament. Right. So you're in a sense, what the the in in a practical sense, what you're doing then in the course is to get people to understand that so much of of the design process and thinking about the just creation generally, whether it's an artistic creation or a software solution or a built the built environment, um, can be rooted in in looking at things from hundreds of years ago that have emerged organically, maybe in nature or maybe through our own creation, rather than starting with a blank sheet of paper. Yeah, it's this idea that things start with a blank sheet of paper, which is quite the opposite of of ornament. Ornament is a is a organic co-created condition. Ornament the essence of ornament is co-creation and collaboration between the holder and the held. Right. And and it arises through this dynamic of listening. Right. And so I've sort of adapted cogito ergo sum to s ergo sum which means uh, you are therefore i am instead of right. i think therefore i am because ornament at its heart is relational and so many of the problems that we are observing in our world right now whether it be climate change or others have to do with the fact that it's not relational it's always about how we can get ahead rather than right. what is best for the whole right right Interesting. And so when you're like, I'm looking through some of the aspects of the curriculum that you're teaching and a lot of the people, that's a very varied group of people who come in to to take this course and curriculum with you. Um, But like some of these exercises relate to, you know, like logo design and drawing and like, like help, help me understand how that helps someone to connect with ornament rather than just, you know, the, the opposite, you know, the absence of ornament. Oh, yeah. So um, that's a great question. So you can say a logo is one example yeah. of, of ornament that people understand, right? right? But what's the result of having annihilated ornament is that we're left with the pieces of what mm-hmm. the greater picture was. And so the, the logo is now this self-standing thing on a white sheet of paper. Right. Whereas just it's like, it's like cutting a gargoyle off of a church and putting it on your desktop. <laughs> <laughs> And so I've just, I use it as a jumping off point for people because people don't know what the word ornament means, but they know what logo means, right? Right, right. And so it's a way for people to connect to the, the consciousness of ornament through something that they use and, and want to make. And so then we can go through an ornament design process to achieve a logo design or to end up or to somehow arrive at it organically without really making it a freestanding thing. Right, right, right. And it, so it's coming from a place of, you know, that, that has pre-existed rather than, as you said, the blank sheet of paper. You just before talked about an ornament design process. Uh, talk me through that a bit more. Oh, so it starts with, there's a, there's a couple different ways. Um, ornament is a response to an edge condition. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think of, um, what I think of when I think of ornament design is I think of watching Kent Bloomer um, for the first time I saw him um, go to a site and search for an edge. It was fascinating, right? right? It was like, where do I ornament? (laughs) And I thought he would choose the front or I thought he would, because it was this beautiful campus in Shanghai and he was invited, we were invited to sort of look for sites, site for ornament, right? Within this building, within it's not a building, a campus. So there's oh, infinite right, like in, infinite surfaces, right? There's he could have put a big entrance gate. He could have put, um, you know, all sorts of 
of, of sites. And so w- what he looked for was the place, and for, as this, there's many different ways to design, but he specifically looked for a holder that really needed help. Right. <laughs> so just the way a doctor is looking to heal something, he right. was looking at this container, the architecture, and he was looking where it was most in need of service. In other words, mm. where there was problems, where yeah, there was the problems, yeah, where there was the least amount of harmony. And right. so where the ornament would create so that the problem would become an opportunity and a, a place of beauty. Right. Where was that? Uh, and so in the center of the campus, um, there was this, there is a black box theater, but um for some reason, they decided to put the HVAC on top of the theater. And so all around campus, instead of a beautiful roof, all you saw was HVAC on top of the roof. Sorry, what's, <laughs> what's an HVAC? It's like oh, an air conditioning um, unit. Yeah, air conditioning unit. And so it, it was just, it's just this horrible the eyesore. ultimate ornament. The, uh, yeah, terrible <laughs> eyesore. And so the roof is such a beautiful edge, right? right? right. And so he chose that edge as because you have so to answer your question, it began with a search for a holder. Right. Ornament needs to be held, right? And so he right. was looking for a holder. After finding the holder, what starts is you try to identify the seed. Right. So what's the seed? What's the seed geometry that effloresces along the holder? And so I watched. Uh, can't do a lot of research into the mission vision of the school, also the mm-hmm. Chinese culture. And so we were looking at Chinese paradigms of seeds and keys. And right. one of the paradigms was the dragon and the phoenix. So we looked at okay. keys that were based on dragons and the geometries of dragons expressed throughout Chinese culture and then really developing those geometries and having them flourish through the holder. Right. So identifying and, the holder and then identifying, you can say, the system of, of efflorescence. Yeah, and you used that word just before, just um, for, for mine. What, what what does that word actually mean? Sorry. <laughs> efflorescence? Yeah, what's efflorescence? Flourishing. So when you said flourishing. flourishing oh, great. When oh, you I, said I flourishing. <laughs> I'm all about it. I love efflorescence. You're all about it. It's something that flourishes. Um, so just, just to close out on that, that wonderful example, so we took an HVAC, a air conditioning outlet unit thing that was in the middle of the campus, visible to all, horrible, and what resulted on in that space or in that hold, as you as you call it, um, what was the impact of that? Oh, yeah, that's great. Um, and so he ended up designing, we ended up, the, the Bloomer Studio ended up designing a dragon's gate and then a puzzle ball. So one of the beautiful objects in Chinese culture are these beautiful balls that nested together and impossibly intricate. All right. And so... Uh, the studio developed a modern version of that of that uh, ornament, right. and integrated dragons and phoenixes, and figured out how to place it on top of the theater, including building a gate to the theater, right. Right. which really brought together Chinese traditional ornament with modern architecture. It was it's just brilliant. I mean, I think it's a brilliant piece. I love it. We're gonna. I'm gonna have to link to some photos of it so people can understand how yeah. that transformed that. And my guess is that people's uh, affinity with or relationship to both the building and the space changed because of that as well. Is that would that be fair to say? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it became it, it changed something from an eyesore to an icon. Right. Icon to <laughs> eyesore to icon. <laughs> I love that. 
All right, we've absolutely nailed it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is absolutely fascinating. Just just by just total uh, like side note on this. Um, my company when I was in San Francisco was a you know financial tool for for consumers. Um, but when when trying to do the logo, I said to the designer, I don't I want people to already feel like they already know this form and this shape. And I I instructed him to actually go and look into Mayan characters um, because I thought there was a permanence to them. They'd been around for so long that people would uh, organically feel like that they were familiar. And we ended up modelling the logo to have its own meaning for us in the form that we needed it to take. Um, but it had hallmarks of the, of the way these kind of characters are formed and it worked. People used to say to us, I feel, I know you guys, I've seen you around or it feels familiar. I've heard of you before. And I'm like, I think it's a visual attachment to the, to the shape. It looked like a tattoo in some respects. So I don't know, maybe organically having, having done this in a, in a past form. So first of all, that's a brilliant thing to tell your designer because, because you, you actually had him start at a different place than he would have started. Absolutely. Because when you said start with something familiar, that meant that he went to existing design paradigms. Right. And so rather than try to come up with something new, you said, give me something old. Right. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> so that's good. Great. That's, that's, that's a huge place to start. And, um, ornament is familiar. It, it feels right. like home. It feels like something that people already know. And, yeah. and so you definitely gave that instruction. Yeah. Um, I'd say that as I'm bringing this into my practice, one huge shift that I've been finding is that rather than be the designer that gets the assignment, I find myself co-creating with the client. And right. so I, I lead these, I don't design it for them. I actually sure. teach them how to design their own and they're not my students, they're my clients. And so right. through facilitated workshops, it becomes because nobody knows what ornament is, right? And so you have to simultaneously be instructed while you create it for yourself. Right. And so um, it becomes a collaboration whereby they design their own logo. I mean, that's what's been happening. Yeah. And then obviously that informs so much of how they think about oh my God. their design generally. It's, which it's is- amazing. And so I take them through the design process, which is a, which is a process of personal discovery. So it's a yeah. transformational process as they discover – who they are, and then we co-create, it crystallizes. There's a moment when it crystallizes into, you can say, that seed geometry, right, which could right. then find a holder in their building, in, in different parts of their company, yeah. and, um, and then it can flourish, right? right? And so just helping them, guide them through that initial process. Yeah. And so, and so how, did, how did you end up here? How did you end up in the, I mean, I've read a bit of your background and I'm not going to paraphrase that, but what, what was the journey for you to arrive in this place, you know, helping people to understand and unlock this, this ornament thing? Like, what's your backstory? Oh, it's, it's funny, right? <laughs> so I, I became a yoga teacher uh, when I was still in college at Yale. Okay. So it was a yeah. long, it was before yoga was super popular and there right. weren't that many people doing it. And so I started a on-campus group and I wanted to write okay. about yoga and architecture for my senior thesis, uh, sure. specifically how models, yogic ideas of the body and space applied to architecture. Right. And they really didn't want me to write about it um, because it falls out of the modernist canon. Right. And and so when I the person who was leading the senior seminar to help craft the abstracts that then gets submitted to the dean for approval, she basically was like, she actually said, Jessica, could you just write about Le Corbusier? 
<laughs> well, that's I looked, what we already know. That we're I comfortable like, with. Exactly. I, she, and I was like, um, well, who needs to write any more about Le Corbusier? <laughs> I mean, it's so beaten to right. the ground. Right. It sounds terribly boring and not useful. Sure. And later on, after the thesis became a success, she, she was like, look, the reason why I said that was because that's the only way I knew how to help you. So it didn't come out of wanting to suppress me, but rather not knowing how else to help me. She was like challenging you to go and do something other than that by saying, go and do it. Was that what was like reverse psychology? Am I really? Maybe, but it certainly worked. (laughs) Absolutely. It sounded like it worked. (laughs) But then when, when I wrote the, when I wrote my abstract, um, they, they tried to block, they tried to, you know, it went all the way up to Robert Stern, apparently Mm -hmm. all the way up to the Dean. And it was like, Jessica, you can't write this. <laughs> and I was like, "What?" what? And we, so, it. we won't publish it. Sure. Yeah, we can't. We can't. We can't let this happen at the Yale School of Architecture. This is not going to sure. happen. This is this right. is not going to happen. And so, what ended up happening is um, they they sent me to Kent Bloomer, and so the the director of undergraduate studies sent me to Kent Bloomer, and I walked into his office, and the first thing he said was, he looked at me and he said, "They send me all the crazies." <laughs> <laughs> so I hope Kent was the one who is the study of ornament. Is, yeah, that, is so that, he's been teaching. He's it's he's he lives this amazing life where right. in a school of modernism, which is defined as being a, annihilation of ornament, he's the person right. that teaches ornament, right? Sure. So right. so they send him all the all the aberrants, the all the right. aberrations of the system, and so Perfect. I ended up in his office and in. In a single session, in a single conversation, he taught me how to frame my argument. He was like, Jessica, you can't, they can't tell you this is irrelevant. Instead of saying yoga in architecture, you just say the body in architecture, the yogic understanding of the body. How can they say that that's not relevant? And so he just taught me how to navigate, which is what ornament does, teaches you how to navigate the existing conditions. Right, and the edge case that you were referring to earlier. Yeah, and so what was amazing was not only did he teach me ornament, he taught me ornament in practice on like an intellectual, like his arguments, how he navigates is also his work. Mm-hmm. And then how did that, so this was in Yale, which, you know, geographically East Coast, you're now on the West Coast. There was a whole bunch that happened in there. Like a, one part of your bio, it said you went and did a 450-day silent meditation like what what was the arc that landed you in LA you know working in 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 the field that you're in now oh so now I'm in San Francisco but uh, the short version of the story is um my thesis ended up being a big success um it it went great they love I wrote a great paper they they gave me a distinction the major I got an A the person that was like don't do it, ended up using my thesis as an example the next year of a successful project. <laughs> I figure. So, so it turned out great. Um, and then after I graduated from Yale, um, I received um, a prize, a $5,000 cash prize for right. my contributions to the cultural life of the campus, which was, I was very active in, in right. putting on art shows, building community. Mm-hmm. And when at the graduation at Yale, it's like, Yale has a lot of money. They hand out a lot of gifts. It's very nice. <laughs> and and so then I used that to um, to go on a pilgrimage to Tibet. And um, I saw some incredible structures that I wrote about. And um, it actually be- 
began my next stage of my education, which was in the the Eastern canon. Sure. So I really dove into the studies of of Sanskrit and Tibetan Buddhism and yoga. And I studied those for a decade uh, in depth right. with the same intensity of my education at Yale, if not right. greater intensity. Sure. And just in the system that I was studying in the Buddhist system, after you complete the entire curriculum, you don't graduate, you go into a long retreat. <laughs> cause that's when you practice. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, that's when you practice all of your tools. Cause you can't right. practice them in any other situation. Cause they're about sure. navigating states of consciousness that are done in deep contemplation. Right. And so that was like the culmination of my Eastern philosophical contemplative training. Right. Um, and so I hold both traditions yeah. very, very happily and um, they inform each other. Yeah, I was going to say they sound like they complement each other for the you know for, for for what you're taking out into the world now and, and teaching people about. And I mean, I've you know we have to be hugely reductionist in 35 minutes to try and unpack that. There's obviously a hell of a lot more to it. Um, how like how do you see that now taking shape? Like, it, there's a course that you're running. Some of it's online. Some of it's you know in in person. Obviously, when times allow for that. <laughs> how, like this is for me. I feel like this is you know, systemic change because you're changing the way people think about the way they approach the problems that they're solving. Is, is that the formation of this now? Is that how you're taking it out into the world? Or is it, is, tell, talk, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's absolutely systemic change. It's, it's changing the structures of your consciousness by creating ways to navigate the interstitial spaces that you didn't know how to navigate before. Right. And the tools that I'm using to communicate it is I'm calling it an integral pedagogy. So it's really bringing in all the different tools from the contemplative traditions to the academic traditions and, and using them to bring forth this ancient wisdom right. into contemporary practice. Yeah. And in terms of how the Western led to the Eastern, I, I really ground my education, the Western and the quadrivium, which is the foundation of Plato's Academy. And right. Originally, the meaning of the liberal arts is arts that teach you to be free. And so, in terms of freedom for how yeah, you think and how liberal you... arts is how can you be free? And for me, right. like that training is what allowed me to go into my contemplative traditions, sure. which sure. is the search for freedom. And then, like, in terms of like what your, I guess, I'm trying to work out how to say this, your, uh, in, in, in what you're doing, you're now seeing and talking to a huge range of people across a whole range of disciplines. Um, and you talked before about the kind of co-creation that's happening with them in this kind of, you know, this seed form in terms of it could be their logo, it could be some other thing that they're contemplating or design a problem that they're working on. Uh, where are you drawing your inspiration from with respect to that? With is there, is there people who you look to other than obviously Kent, who's been a massive influence, who, you know, are an inspiration to you or who you think are, are taking great greatness out into the world generally? What's your inspiration? Oh, I, my inspiration is everyone that, that shows up in my inbox. Uh, <laughs> every single collaborator is an inspiration. I'm inspired by their work. And yeah. there isn't anybody that I work with that I'm not learning from and inspired by. And so uh, I know that's like a very vague response. Well, it's not vague. Okay. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's specific. Yeah, it's uh, the people that I'm ended up working with. Uh, they run they run the gamut from entrepreneurs, business leaders to artists and architects and designers and um, 
body workers. <laughs> and what's a body worker? Like a someone in a yogi, pro, you know, tradition. Someone who's a masseuse. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. Right. So from like a billionaire to a massage therapist to. I love it. Yeah. Or, and, or a billionaire massage therapist. That's right. A billionaire <laughs> massage therapist. It's <laughs> probably. Right. I, I'm fascinated by it. Like, um, that's, that's amazing. Look, I, I think that well, that's, feels um, like a great place to sort of round it out. Today, there's so much more I want to talk to you about, but I'm mindful of your time. Just in terms of, of something to leave people with, like what what's the starting point for people to relate to this? When I first spoke to you and before the interview, uh, I was trying to work out how to attach myself to this idea and had to do a fair bit of thinking for that. For people who are listening uh, who think, okay, where do I begin? What would you say to them? I would say look for the edges of things. And do what with them? Just look at them. Really? Okay. Yeah. So start, <laughs> just look at your door and look at the edge of your door. Look at your right. cup. Look at the edge of your cup. <laughs> look at your pencil. Look at the edge of your pencil. Um, and then when you look at, when you see that edge, think about how you navigate that edge. How do you right. feel when you touch that edge? What does it feel like to walk through that edge? Right. And, and okay, amazing. I'm, I'm still, I, I still, we're going to have to come back to it. I, but um, yeah, I, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess it's interesting. Like just before we do go, that um, there was a, a friend, uh, a girl I met in San Francisco. You know, I think on Twitter, to be honestly. Um, and she was an artist. She she drew, and I was like, you know, talking to her about these big ideas that I had. Uh, and you know, she's like, why don't you just what can you see right now? And she's, I was like, oh, there's a cup here. And she's like, just draw that cup. And I'm like, really? And she's like, just pick up a pencil and draw that cup. Stop overthinking the thing, the magnificence of the thing that you're doing and find a starting point. And I drew this cup and it was massively confronting, which sounds odd, but I had, I judged myself in the moment of doing it. I wasn't confident in doing it, but it was you know, incredibly cathartic doing it. Is there an element of that here, which is find a starting point, find an edge, dwell on that. Don't feel you, like you need to output something or create something, understand what is happening at that edge and just go from there? Well, when you create ornament, you become comfortable with the edge condition and you become right. an edge dweller, which is another way to be on the, the margins of transformation. Yeah. And so as you look for edges, you start to be comfortable with the frontier, right? Being that's, on the edge. that's what living on the edge. And um, that's where ornament lives. That's where creation lives. That's that's the intersection between the holder and the held. And so when you start to stay there, that's where your energy goes. And then that's yeah. where thought forms will go. And that's where things that's will where populate. Come from. Yeah. And Love then it. you'll flourish there along the edge. Love it. I love it. I knew we'd come back to efflorescence. <laughs> <laughs> you just wanted me to say fl- flourishing on the edge. I, I just wanted one more flourish. <laughs> okay. You got it. You got it. Jessica, it's amazing. I, I mean, I'm just uh, wonderfully inspired talking to you. It was really, really lovely. Um, I think Me too, so Vincent. For, you yeah. so such great questions and, and amazing insights. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. We'll speak again soon. Yes. Take care. Thank you. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Shape the System. As usual, if you'd like to suggest a guest, someone that you know who's helped change the system for the better, please go to www.shapethesystem.org, click on the top right-hand corner, then click Suggest Guest. Make sure that you click Subscribe so that you get the new episode. Shape the System is an independent podcast with support from KPMG High Growth Ventures. 
connects founders to the services they need along their journey. Whether you are looking to refine your strategy, mature your finance function, prepare for a capital raise, expand abroad, or simply comply with regulatory requirements, they provide you with the support you need to drive your business forward.